0: If you want to open up your Bible there, if you don't have one, you can bring one with you. There's some in the chairs in front of you. Uh, I encourage you to to follow along as we study through. We study through God's Word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It's my desire to just not teach you from the Bible, but to teach you the Bible. Um, The Word of God is sharper and powerful, more powerful than any two-edged sword, and it has the ability to do things that nothing else in this world can do. And um, my desire is for you to know God's word, to receive God's word, to have God's word implanted into your heart, because I want you to know God's will for your life, and, and God wants you to know Him. And this is a way by which we do so. And so we study through every book of the Bible as, as we can. And <clears throat> we've been studying through the book of Revelation for a few weeks now. We're in chapter 3, and we're going to make it through the first six verses. In these, um, uh, in these first studies that we've been going through, uh, my personal favorite is chapter one, where we get to really see and, and receive a picture and a, and, and, a, and a description of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as the resurrected Lord and Savior, the great I Am, the, the, um, the, the lion, um, if you will, who will come back Someday, not only to take us to be with him, but we'll come back a second time to set up his kingdom here on this earth. And, um, and we know that when he does so that he will judge the earth in truth and in righteousness. And when we study through the book of Revelation, if you know anything about it or you've heard anything about it, you know it's a book of prophecy. And it's a book of prophecy that foretells of things to come in regards to the judgment of God. Now, one of the things that you you notice and you see when we study through this book, and we've spent some time going through it now, is that we don't really get to the judgment of the earth for a couple more weeks. And the reason why is because God is first dealing with His people his church and if you remember God has left us behind to testify of him to be a witness to this world and one of the ways that we are a witness to them is not only by the way that we live our lives as a light and speak words of truth teaching people the things that Jesus has taught us and the things that we know to be true as in regards to the words of God but we get to be an example and a witness as God even disciplines us as, our children, as his children, you know, one of the ways that I see this is me as a father, I have four kids and um, I, I hope that my younger kids, that's not always true, but I hope they will learn from the mistakes that the older kids make that I get to uh, discipline them in somewhat in front of the other kids because they're like, oh, I don't want to do that because I know it won't go well with me. And and um, obviously, God doesn't punish his kids. All of the punishment and wrath that we deserved, Christ took upon ourselves. But as a loving father, Christ disciplines us, and he desires for us to live lives uh, that are holy, lives full of, of righteousness and purity. And, and um, we, the church, were called to be a light. And so as God first deals with his church, as we're told that judgment begins in the house of God. In other words, God deals with his own kids before he deals with the rest of the world. That's what we see going on here, is that we can be a light and a witness and a testimony, even to the rest of the world as God goes, listen, this is what I expect, and if I'm going to hold the rest of the world accountable to this standard, I'm going to hold my kids to it as well. And, and it's not a condemning thing, as we will see again this morning as we study through, this letter to the church of Sardis it's it's a it's a it's an encouraging thing it's a corrective thing god's desire is that we receive the correction and that we turn back to him and be in that place where <clears throat> where the blessings of God is manifested and poured out in our lives. Not only that, so that we're living a life that, 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 so that things might go well with us. I love that in the Old Testament, even in regards to the law of Moses that was given to the children of Israel, to God's chosen people, is that over and over and over again as God's laying down His law for His people, He says, man, the reason why I want you guys to do this or the reason why you need to obey these commands is so that it might go well with you. Over and over and over again, that's the admonishment. And God desires good things for us. He doesn't desire just to to stifle our fun or to to take away things that, that aren't good for us. God is a giver of good always. And when he calls us into obedience and he brings us into discipline, it's because he's desiring for good to be in our lives. Now, I'll start off by reading. Verses 1 through 6, and then we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll go through these verses. So if you'll follow along with me in chapter 3, verse 1, um, we know that the Jesus Christ is given this, uh, these letters, uh, these words to the Apostle John while he was on the island of Patmos, and, and uh, Jesus told John to write these things down and, and to send them to the churches. And it says in verse 1, And to the angel and the church in Sardis write... These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. That you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Verse 4, you have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. He Who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Verse 6 He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, I call upon you um, this morning, Lord, to pour out the Holy Spirit upon this place. Into our hearts, Father, so that we might have those ears to hear, a heart to receive, God, and, and, and to do as a result of having um, you revealed to us, God, what you desire to do in and through us. Those areas of our lives, Lord, that might be out of place. Those things that we're holding on to. The, things that we've, the, the place that we've drifted away from, that place where we began in newness of life with you, where, where Father, we've maybe <coughs> failed to continue to walk in the Spirit, to walk in faith in you, Lord, where we've been distracted or deterred by the things of this life, Lord, where we have become um, something other than a blessing um, to you and to others. Father, you're the giver of life, and you're the restorer of life, and Father, you heal us when we fall, and you bring us back to that place, God, um, that you desire for us to be, that place, God, um, where your good and your blessings are, are being manifested in us and through us. So Lord, I pray as we study your word now, God, that you would teach us, God, that you would reveal truth to us, and God, that we would bring glory to your name and be a light to this world in the times that we live in. Father, we do want to be those who are living expectantly, God, that have eyes that are watchful, Lord, people who hold fast um, to you, to you that is never changing, to you that is faithful. Lord, may we be encouraged this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, as we've been studying through these letters to the churches in Asia Minor, I've pointed out over and over again that one of the the specific points of application that we can look at as we study through these letters is a prophetic application. And what I mean by that is the letters had an application firsthand in that they were written to real churches and, and they were a message that was specifically needed, that these churches specifically needed. A real letter handed to them <clears throat> given by the by Jesus Christ himself. And so we see that as an application in each one of these letters. We also know that as we look at these letters today in our time that we can gain personal application where God through the Holy Spirit can take the words that was written to those churches all those years ago in Asia Minor and and apply the same truths, the same words, the same message to not only our lives individually but to our church as a whole. And as we go through these things, I'm sure you've seen in different areas where we go, yeah, I need to, I need to resubmit my life to Christ. I need to, I need to be sure that um, I'm staying in that place where I am in that first love relationship with Christ as we look to it with the Church of Ephesus. And all the different ones where we can see personal application, but also application to our church where our church needs to be in the place that God would have us be in these areas that these other churches have strayed from, that we too have the same ability and the same tendency to stray from. And being in the will of God and doing the will of God through our church means that we heed his instructions that he's even written to these churches that apply to our lives. And then the third point of application is this prophetic. In that um, each one of these letters represents, as I've spoken to you in the past, or describes and represents a time in the history of the church that began on the day of Pentecost and continues on till today, a a time or a, a age, if you will, in the history of the church that we can now look back on and see that helps us understand the progression that we're in as God's people, as the church, as the bride of Christ. And um, if you study this out with that kind of application in mind with this prophetic reference, what you'll see is, is that there are many Bible scholars, and, and, and not that I really think I'm a Bible scholar, more of a student, but um, I, I agree with this, this prophetic application in that I believe that this letter, and it appears that this letter um, was originally written to the church in Sardis, also has this prophetic application to a period of church history that began with a bold act of one man specifically on a day in the year 1517 in October on the 31st day and if you study this out what you come to realize as you look at church history is that history teaches us that Pope Leo Catholic Pope Pope Leo X he had begun a campaign to rebuild um, the Basilica of St. Peter. And in order to raise the necessary funds for this rebuilding project, he commissioned men, holy men of God, including a Dominican friar by the name of, of Johann Tezel. And he commissioned these men, like this one man, to travel the world and sell indulgences from the church in order to raise the money that was needed to rebuild St. Peter's um, uh, Basilica. And um, with the purchase of these indulgences, the church taught and its parishioners believed that a person could ultimately buy forgiveness. They could purchase forgiveness for the sins that they committed, but not only for the sins that they had committed, but for the future sins that they were planning on committing or that they might commit. Furthermore, it was taught and it was believed by the church that the purchase of these indulgences could also be applied to the sins of a loved one who had already died and and those who were waiting in purgatory for the absolution of their sins so that they could make their way to heaven. In fact, this Dominican friar, Joan Titzel, who, who sold these indulgences, he had coined a phrase that had become famous in order to help his sales. And his, this phrase went, he said, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory in heaven springs. Now, the, the theology behind this sale of indulgences, because I want to look at this in just a little deeper sense, the theology behind the sale of these indulgences um, how do I say this? Uh, they, they rested in the belief that faith, and it's a false belief, in, but it's an unbiblical belief, but it rested in the belief that faith alone cannot justify a man. But rather, justification depends only on such faith is, that is active in charity, in other words, giving, or doing good works. And that's not far from what many people still believe today, that there's something good that they can do that would justify them in the eyes of God. And um, the, the rest of the theology behind this is that the benefits of good works could then be obtained by this charitable giving, specifically by donating money to the church. Now, Fire Johann Tissel, he had been sent to Germany. That was his area that he was to go and sell these indulgences and raise money for this building project. And during his travels, he was confronted by an Augustan monk who openly opposed the sale of these indulgences on the basis and claimed that it was heresy, that it was a radical teaching of the church. This Augustine monk insisted that since forgiveness was God's alone to grant those who claimed that these indulgences absolved the buyer from the punishment and and, um, um, granted them some kind of salvation, he believed them to be in error. He said, Christians must not slacken in following Christ on account of such false assurances. In other words, don't follow after Christ with the idea that you're going to have some kind of absolution of your sins, that you'll be right before God because you've given the church money to buy forgiveness. He said you should not follow Christ with this thought. This monk had turned away from this widely accepted teaching within the church after studying through the book of Romans, is what history teaches us. And in doing so, he came to the understanding that the Bible teaches us that justification, the act of declaring, the act of God declaring a purchase or a person righteous, is by faith alone. And being inspired to respond and, and, and confront the sale of these indulgences, this German born Augustan monk named Martin Luther confronted the Roman Catholic Church. In doing so, he, sent, he wrote a letter and he sent it to his bishop, Bishop Albert of Mines, protesting that the sale of these indulgences <clears throat> within this letter. And in this letter, he attached a copy of a 95-point thesis that he had written called The, Disp- the Dis- Disputation of Martin Luther on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. And in the letter to this bishop, Martin Luther declared that salvation does not come from good works, but that it is a free gift of God alone, received by grace through faith in Jesus, the only one who can redeem a person from their sins. But Luther's message, as you probably know, was rejected, and on October 31st, in the year 1517, Martin Martin Luther responded by nailing his 95-point thesis to the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg. In turn, he was formally excommunicated by the church, and unbeknownst to him and to the church at the time, the Protestant Reformation began. During this time, many wonderful things have occurred as the Protestant church came back to believing the Bible to be the inerrant word of God. And they returned to the fundamental teachings that the Bible puts forth, such as salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone. Yet many of the reformers quickly settled on creating new religious institutions new theological ideas, instead of putting the emphasis on seeking Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit. Sadly, as we now look back upon this age of church history, we see that there's now been many divisions within the church as a result of this Protestant movement. Divisions within the church that have resulted and from these divisions we know there have come very, many differing denominations and truly a lack of understanding of what it means to be a cohesive part of the living body of Christ. And with this, a lack of understanding in regards to the life that is received when we abide or abide in the Holy Spirit. And to this church, Jesus writes and says, I know that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Sardis, if we begin to look at the actual city and the church there to whom this letter was originally addressed to, Sardis means remnant. And this city was located about 30 miles Southeast of Thyatira, Thyatira being the last city and the last church that we looked at in the previous letter at the end of chapter two. And Sardis was an extremely wealthy city located on a commercial trade route that had five major roads flowing into it. However, a large portion of the city's wealth came from deposits of gold that were in the, the Pactolus River, which ran down from Mount um, tumults into the valley and through the middle of the city now most of the people there in sardis worshiped greek gods just like in much of the other greek um, uh, cities and citizens that we've looked at already but in the center of this city there was a temple a temple that was dedicated to the worship of the pagan goddess artemis And Artemis was believed to be the daughter of Zeus, the mythological god Zeus, and and she was the goddess of, of the hunt, of forest and of hills, of moon and of archery. And like most of the temples at this time, this temple had been dedicated to Artemis and it attracted travelers from very far away as they gathered to this place to pay homage to the Greek goddess. But in 17 AD, this temple and most of the city was destroyed by a major earthquake, and it shook the city and this temple to the ground. And even though the Roman Empire had contributed large amounts of money to rebuilding Sardis, it took many years for the city to recover, and the effects of the disaster were still being felt even when this letter was written to the church. Now, like the previous letters we studied through, we read here in the beginning of this address that Jesus opens up by identifying himself in a specific way that relates to the need of, to the, uh, to the need of those whom he was writing it to. And to the church in Sardis, if you look there with me, Jesus describes himself or identifies himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And we know that this reference to the seven stars, from what we've studied through and looked at already, is a specific reference to the leaders, to the pastors of these seven churches. And then number seven, as we've seen this before, all throughout this book, and I reference how many times it is brought up through the book of Revelation, it it, it refers to the completion, or to a fullness of, and in and, and regards to the seven spirits of God, we know we don't have to try to discern what this is for ourselves. We can go to the Old Testament and see where it is spoken about or, or made reference to in order to see exactly what it is here that is being alluded to or referenced in the New Testament. And when, and when Jesus makes this reference to the fullness or completeness of the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits of God, we know that this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And in, in Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 through 2, if you remember, it says, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. And we know that this is a messianic uh, reference. Uh, specifically to Jesus Christ. And it's a description of Jesus Christ and, and, and where he would come from and what he would do and what he would possess. And, and in Je- Isaiah chapter 11, it says, there shall come forth from, uh, come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. He says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom And understanding the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And by this, as Jesus now takes with this understanding, this description or this illustration of himself, and greets the the Christians in Sardis, he is reminding them, not only that he is in charge, but he is the Messiah who possesses the fullness of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus is saying this to this church. He's He's saying, I have the Holy Spirit, and furthermore, you don't. I have the Holy Spirit who gives life and you're in need of him. This is how Jesus begins this message to this church. If you remember, the Apostle Paul writing to the Romans had said to them in chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, he says, says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. And we know that ultimately the righteousness that is being referred to is the righteousness that was given to us by Jesus Christ, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that the righteousness of God might become ours. He took our unrighteousness and gave his righteousness. And because he's in us, the spirit of life, and we, but the spirit of life is in us. And, and in, through that, we're told that we have this righteousness of God. But Paul goes on as he's writing to the Romans and he says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life. And that's what this discussion is really about. Life to your mortal bodies. Through His spirit who dwells in you. And so what really Christ is pointing us to is the fact that in him and through him is where life is found, and it's not a part. And in almost every one of these letters that Jesus sent to the seven churches, what we notice is that he first points out some things that the church had got right. Jesus says, "I know your works." I know your patience, your love. He said all of these praises to these different churches that we've read about up to this point. Things that he had seen that had pleased him. But that's not the case with this church, with this dying church. Here, we see that Jesus had nothing good to say about the church overall. In fact, he immediately said that the church in Sardis, he said, you're spiritually dead. And even though they had once had a name, of being alive, they were no; they were now full of death. And sadly, is as, as the case with most of the Protestant churches today, we see that many of them, who once had a name of being spiritually alive, are dead today. Because they've forsaken the things that they had first had, heard the things that they had first received. They had forsaken the teachings of the Word of God, and they no longer have the Holy Spirit of God to lead them. And like the church in Sardis, most of the denominational churches today within the Protestant movement, they've moved moved away from the fundamental teachings of our Christian faith. I think that's pretty obvious. Whether by denying the infallibility of the Scriptures, meaning they're saying that, that that this really isn't all the Word of God. You can't, you can't believe it all. Or they've turned away from the virgin birth or the, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ or they turn away from the conception of, of, of original sin and the depravity of man where they now believe some form of world's philosophy that said, you know, we're not all really evil by nature. We're just basically good by nature and then we're corrupted by our, our, our worldly environment. That's a big part of what's crept into the church today that a lot of the mainstream denominations believe. They don't believe that man is depraved. They even some of them, many of them, don't even really profess the resurrection of Jesus Christ anymore. And the fact of the matter is, is that once a church or an individual begins to reject the Word of God and stops seeking to be led by the Holy Spirit... What we see here and what we're being told here, even by what Paul writes to us in the book of Romans, is that there's no life found in them. There's no life found in these churches. And there's no life found in what they teach. Because life alone is in Jesus Christ. Life alone is in the words of God. Jesus Christ alone has the words of life. Not wise men, quote-unquote, who offer up their own opinions and their own interpretations. And the truth is, many of these churches and many of the people who fill their seats are Christians in name only. Just like perhaps many of these people that Jesus was writing to in the church of Sardis. we don't have to look very hard to see that many churches today who claim the name of Jesus, who take the title of Christian, yet they deny what the Bible says And they deny what Jesus teaches. And a church can have a cross like we do. And they may even have a name that identifies themselves as Christian. Such as Lutheran, Presbyterian, Wesleyan, Methodist, Congregationalist, and even Baptist. And and I'm not singling anyone out. I'm just giving you a bigger picture here. But you know what that what what what, what we should see is, is that just because you have a name that identifies you as a Christian does not mean that you are a true Christian or that the Spirit of God is living in you. And the same is true individually. And simply calling ourselves today, hear this, simply saying that we are Christian in name does not make us one. And contrary to what some people can believe, going to church and doing religious things does not make a person a Christian who has the life of God in them. On the contrary, a person person is a Christian when they believe that Jesus is the Son of God. A person is a Christian when they have an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. A person is a Christian when they have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them. And when they follow Jesus, the Bible tells us, in this newness of life that is received when the Spirit of God comes to live inside of us. A life where the old things have passed away. A life when all things have become new and with the Holy Spirit we then walk with Jesus following his example and seeking daily to live holy lives for him. Now that doesn't mean that we do it perfectly or we don't do it always, but that's the direction that we're heading. The fact of the matter is that in our own strength, listen, because here's the key, because this is what happens that gets us off, straight, off, off kilter, off track, even as people who have been a Christian for a long time, even as a church perhaps that may at once had a, a name that they, they were alive, but now they're not. What goes wrong is, is that we begin to do things in our own strength, in our own flesh, in our in according to our own wisdom, because we think that we've learned a few things and that we now can do it, that there's a better way or a right way apart from God and apart from His Word. And, and the fact of the matter is is that in our own strength, we can never live a holy life no matter how much knowledge we have. We can never bear fruit, spiritual fruit, in our lives apart from the infilling and dwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is why we need that relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to hear Him. We need to allow Him to guide us. And we need we need the power of the Holy Spirit controlling us. I need the, holy pow- the, the power of the Holy Spirit controlling me. Because without that, you know what controls me? The natural man. My flesh, my desires, my lusts, my pride. You see, we need a relationship where Jesus is guiding us and we need the power of the Holy Spirit controlling us. So only the Spirit of God can transform a person. And without the Holy Spirit, we individually or as a church. Listen, this is important because what I'm just going to be really honest. What I see going on within the Calvary Chapel movement is the very same thing that has happened with all these other denominational churches and the Protestant church that I've mentioned. There's, there's, the Calvary Chapel name and church is not exempt from this same fatal path. And just because we call ourselves Calvary Chapel doesn't mean that we are somehow guaranteed this life that we're talking about. It's individual. It's personal. And as we as a church make a decision to follow after Christ, to be led by the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, to not deny the Word of God, then life, the life of God and the life of the Holy Spirit will be in us and through us. But if we decide to go a different way, we can expect to go the path that the rest of the churches that we may know and think about have gone, where there's no life in us. And once where there was a movement, there just becomes this, this, this monument. And when this monument comes, then there, there, there comes this place of death, a mausoleum, where there once used to be life, but now all there is is death. And only the Spirit of God can transform a person. And only the Holy Spirit, as, as He dwells us in individually, as He leads our, as our church, only He can bring forth life. We cannot do it in our own strength or in our own flesh. And in doing so, we have to rely, when we do it in our flesh, we're left to rely upon our own resources, which, at the very least, is always limited and inadequate. We have to rely upon our own strength. And I don't know about you, but I grow weary. I grow tired. And yet it tells us that our God never grows weary. He never tires. And we're left to rely rely upon our own wisdom, And that word, I don't think, can ever really truly be used apart from what is given to us from God. The Bible tells us that God's ways are high above our ways, and that apart from Him, there truly is no wisdom, but that if we ask in faith and call upon Him, that He will give us wisdom, an endless amount. And we're reminded that we can't do things in our own strength again in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, where. Where God's speaking to Zerubbabel and even the, 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 the task that God had set before him, he's basically saying, Zerubbabel, if you want life in this project of rebuilding the temple and leading my people back into the land, he said to him, not by power or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24, is where looking at this as a whole picture. We're also reminded not only of the importance of the Spirit of God empowering us and leading us and guiding us and directing us, we're reminded of the importance of knowing God. We're reminded of the importance of having this ongoing, day by day, intimate and personal relationship with Him. Listen to what it says in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. It says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man, who here wants to be wise, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man, who wants to be mighty. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man, you all want to be rich, so I'm not even going to ask that. (laughs) Glory in his riches, but let him who glories, glory in this, God says. He says that he understands and knows me. Why? Because there's nothing greater. There's nothing better than knowing Jesus Christ and having that intimate relationship with him. That personal relationship with him. Why? Because as Paul writes to the Roman, the Romans, this is where life is at. Think back to your life without Christ and how you truly were no more than did men and women walking upon the face of the earth hopeless, without joy, without peace, turning to everything and anything of this world to try to find something to give you some kind of sense of inner life. But all there was was death. But yet when you came to Christ, when He revealed Himself to you, when He put the Spirit of God inside of you, forgave you of your sins, gave you a newness of life, put your feet on a high ground, Remember how that life felt. And to the church in Sardis, Jesus said to them, to these who were feeble, to those who were dying, He said, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. That are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Now, one of the things I want to point out is in this church, we've done parenting classes, and the parenting classes we do is called Shepherding the Heart of a Child. And if you want to be convicted as a parent, come to that class. Let me tell you right now, talking from personal experience. And one of the things that they talk about is, is that as parents who are parenting the heart of our children, leading them into a relationship with God, is that one of the things that we must do when we discipline our kids is that we must instruct them in the right way to go. And so often as a parent, I fail in that because I'm lazy, And where it's real convenient to to, to discipline my child and then just to leave it like that. You do that again, you're going to get it more. Or whatever, right? And rather than taking the time to sit down with my kids in love and go, listen, I know you know this is wrong in what you did, but God's Word says this, and this is the right way to go. And this is how to get from this place where you're at to the place where there is life. But God's never like that with us. And we see that here, even with this church, that as Christ takes the time to speak to this church, these words of condemnation, if you will, in that sense. And remember, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus where God looks at us and just goes, I'm done with you. I'm over it. Look at what you've done. God always points these things out these judgments, if you will, so that there may be correction, meaning that he may take us and lead us from the place where we should not be to the place where we should be, to the place where there is um, life. And in these next verses, what we see is it's very clear that Jesus cared about these believers in Sardis, even these ones who were fallen, this feeble church, and his desire was for them to be spiritually healed. And the counsel that he gave to his church began with these two words, be watchful. Oh, that is is an instruction that we the church need today, that we individually need today. Be watchful. Are you being watchful? Are you awake? Are you alert? Are you living your life in such a way where you're aware of what's going on around you eternally, spiritually, spiritually? In other words, Jesus is saying to this church, wake up and pay attention. Be watchful. Be watchful. Wake up and pay attention to those things he says that still have some life. I like war movies a lot. But in these war movies, you know, these guys are always getting shot. You know, I was watching one the other day and this, this guy, I don't, he, he, he got blowed up. And they're trying to save him, and it's his buddies, and it's camaraderie, and it's like guy stuff. And I'm like, yeah. And 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 um, the guy dies. I mean, he he he's in the battlefield. They can't get him the help that he needs. And and his his buddy who who is the the medic is trying to revive him and trying to find a vein to get the medicine in him. It's a really dramatic tense scene. It was pretty cool. But at one at one point the the, the guy. He dies. And and what happens is is it's like the whole scene, the director takes the whole scene into the sense where all you see, even though everything else is going around them, chaos in the middle of this firefight, you see just this stillness, this calmness that is brought to it as the medic listens and he gets up close to his buddy. And what he's doing is he's checking to see if there's some life. He's being watchful. He's being attentive. Of course, there was no life, and and it was a sad thing, but real men don't cry, so I just sucked it up, and was like, yeah, and then they got back into the fight. But the point is, is is when there's death and life at hand, you've got to be watchful and attentive to what's still alive. You see, the first step towards revival, and really this is what we're talking about. We talk about this and pray about this all the time in the, in, the, in, the, in the age that we live in, is we want revival, do we not? We see the way our country's going. we see the downfall of the church, and we know that the Holy Spirit of God has the power again to breathe new life into our church, where we would see revival and a great work of God. Amen? I believe still today that the gospel message has the power of God to salvation, even in the midst of this dark time that we live in. And I believe that God still has many, many people whom he wants to save, not only within this world, but even in our country. I don't believe God's done. I don't believe he's done. Yet the first steps to revival, whether it's with the church as a whole or us individually, were you in that moment of your life who here has felt like they've been in that desert time? Where it's just dry, you feel like, man, death is imminent. Where is God? And the first steps toward revival in that place where you feel filled up and nourished and alive Either individually or of that of the church, begins with honest evaluation. It begins with honest evaluation, being watchful, being alert, waking up and going, What's wrong? What's still alive? Honest evaluation and awareness of the fact that something is wrong. And if you're in a desert time in your place, there's something wrong. If you're in a church where there's no life, something's wrong. And the fact of the matter is, is with any living thing, think about it, with any living thing, there's certain attributes, is there not? If something's alive, it's growing. Even for those of us who are older and have stopped growing, they're still growing. (laughs) Something's growing. Not only that, if something's alive, with any living thing, there's repair. Thank God for that, right? You cut yourself. You heal The one guy that I saw in the movie, his legs were blown off. You know what? When he died, his legs didn't heal. There was no repair. How about reproduction? With any living thing, there's reproduction. Think about these truths in regards to the natural realm that we live in and apply it to the spiritual. Apply it to your own life individually. Apply it to our church today. Let us look at our own church honestly and objectively and go, God, where do we need to see that we are not right? And not only that, but there's power. But if these elements, if these things are lacking spiritually in our lives, either individually or in a church, then is it not reasonable to assume that something is wrong? That spiritual death is in the process that it's taking place, and this church, the church of Sardis, is clear that they had something wrong and that they were, by their Savior, being called to be aware of their spiritual condition. Not so they could figure out how to fix their problems, but so that they would see their condition, see their need, and then come to Jesus who says, I already have what you need. Look to me. It's right here. You don't have the Holy Spirit. I got him and you need him. And it's, Jesus doesn't point these things out and go, okay, now go figure it out, sinner. He points these things out and he makes it known to us so that we would turn to him. And that's what his desire was for this church. And you see, in light of this, guys, don't forget this. Please remember this this morning. In light of this, we must see that Jesus is not only the Savior who gives us life, he is the healer who sustains our life. He's the healer. And he sustains our lives, and he gives us what we need to be healed and to get us back to the place that we need to be. Remember, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah spoke about the Messiah who would come, and he said in chapter 42, verses 1 through 3, In the book of Isaiah, he said, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delight, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice. There's a conviction for a dad. Jesus doesn't yell at us. He doesn't scream at us. Nor will he cause his voice to be heard in the street. I think mine was the other day as I was yelling at my kid. But he says this. He says, A bruised reed he will not break. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. See, Jesus isn't looking and searching to and fro for those who are bruised and those who are smoldering just to go how to break you off and throw you away or how to quench you and put you out so that you're done he's searching to and fro and he comes as the healer looking to give life and to sustain life. So often when an individual or a church is struggling, when spiritual life is quickly fading away, rather than taking this honest assessment that we're called to do and strengthening the things that are remaining, you know what the tendency is? And one of the big problems within the church today and with us individually is that when we're in this spot, you know what we do? Is we look to do something new. To create a new program, and like the world, the modern church is always looking for the next new thing to save them from their problems in order to breathe some kind of new life back into them instead of returning to Jesus and to the Word of God. Well, that other church over there is doing that, and obviously we have some problems here. we got to do that too, or something better than that. We need a new thing too. And the truth is, no amount of new thing or any new church program can bring forth any lasting change or restore that which is about to die. This is why Jesus went on to say in verse 3, if you want to look, he says what? He says, remember. Be watchful, but he says, remember. Remember and go back to the things that you had first heard and received and hold fast to these These were the foundational things found in the truth of God's Word that had first spawned new life in them the good news message of salvation by grace through faith, forgiveness and freedom from sins through the sacrificial death of Jesus, the Son of God who loves us, restoration and reconciliation to our heavenly Father in heaven who created us and resurrection from death into new life and into eternal life through the belief of Jesus' own resurrection from the grave. Is this not where we began? Is this not the place where life was birthed in us? So why would we turn to another thing or a new thing when things aren't right rather than going back to that place where we first received that newness of life? These truths are what had given us sustained the spiritual life in Sardis. And, and, and Jesus said, if they did not repent, here's the warning, here's the rebuke. If they did not repent, if they did not turn back to the Word of God, to these basic foundational things that they had heard and received when they first believed, then Jesus said what? He said, if you don't, He said, I'm coming back to you like a thief. And what Jesus was saying is, is that you're not going to be ready you're not going to be ready. In other words, one day he would come back to take his church and they would not be prepared and they would suffer loss. Now we're not told exactly what that means and I don't want to make an assumption and I don't think we're called to do so. We can simply say is that they would come back, Jesus would come back and they would be unprepared and they would suffer loss. And the sad fact is that the Christians in Sardis what we see is that they had stopped living and looking for the Lord's return. And it had firstly affected the way that they lived. The same fact is also true of most of the denominational churches today. And even though the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus will come back for his church on a day and in an hour when no one knows, Christians today are not living with this truth. They're not living obediently, they're not watching, and they're not waiting expectantly for Jesus' return. But remember, Jesus with His own words, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 through 44, He said, He said, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known the hour, the thief would come, he would have watched." and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at the hour that you do not expect. The point is, listen, when we are expectantly and and waiting, hopefully, for the Lord's return, knowing that it could happen at any moment, even before we get done with this Bible study today, it could, and it might, especially in light of the times that we live in, especially in light of the things that we see going on around us. But if we're not living in that way, you know what? It will will negatively affect the way that we live. And if we are living with that in mind, you know, it will affect every decision that we make. Every decision that we make. In short, we will watch to make sure that we are prepared for our Savior's return. In doing so, we'll hold fast to those truths that we took hold of originally. We'll hold fast to those truths that don't waver, that don't change, that give us security, that give us hope. Those things that we first heard, those things that we first received, when we first believed, and when the spiritual, when, when, and when, when, um, the spiritual life that we received came into us when we first believed. And then, and by that and through that is how we will be sustained no matter what goes on in this world around us as we wait for the Lord's return. And even and, even when, that, and when that day comes, the Bible tells us that it will be either a day of salvation for those who have been watching and waiting expectantly or it will be a, a day of condemnation and judgment for those who do not have that personal relationship with Jesus. If The worship team wants to come back up. We're going to end with this. In verse 4, Jesus says, You have a few names, even in Sardis, yet you have a few names in Sardis, even in Sardis, who do not defile their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He overcomes, will be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen, even in Sardis, in this, in this spiritually feeble church, there were some who were faithfully walking with Jesus. And throughout the church today, we know that still to be true. That there are many who are faithful to Jesus still today. Some who are empowered and being led by the Holy Spirit. And to these overcomers, back then and still today, Jesus promises to clothe them in white garments, which is an awesome picture. It's a picture of the righteousness of God. It's a period of the picture, it's a a picture of the purity and of the holiness of God that is given to all of those who have this personal relationship with Him, to those who walk in in and live by faith in Jesus. And to those who wear the white garment, here's the hope. Those who wear the white garments of Jesus, the hope is that our name will never be blotted from the book of life. And on the day of judgment, when all of mankind, when even you and I stand before the the judgment seat of God and give an account, Jesus promises us that he'll stand up for us that He'll come to our defense, and that He'll confess our name as one of His before the Father's. In closing, I want to point out that the warning for us today is this. If this is all you hear, hear this this morning. Do not grow comfortable or complacent in your Christian life. And whether whether it's for the church that you attend or individually in your life, do not grow comfortable But seek the Lord, pursue the Lord every day, lest you find yourself entering into that desert place and slowly dying. And the encouragement that we can take with us as we leave here this morning is that no church, listen, no church, no individual is behind or is beyond this hope that Jesus lays before us as long as there is a willingness to turn back to Him and to allow for Him to strengthen the things that remain. Let's pray.